welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, bringing you the news to know for the week of August 31st. I missed last week's podcast, getting it out, my bad. At work, they have put 60 epic analysts uh, underneath myself and the CNIO. So evidently, I've become extremely busy. My calendar fills up instantly. Uh, so we'll continue to get podcasts out, but it's going to be more of a weekend activity. I will get them out as soon as I can. Thank you for giving me a little bit of leeway on this. <laughs> As I, as I adjust to the new normal here. All right, let's get to it. I got uh, six articles on tap. We'll see what we can get through. The first one, I want to talk about Amazon and the release of the Amazon Halo. This is a band, if you haven't heard about it, it came out on August 27th. It claims to use a suite of AI-powered health tools with an innovative and stylish wristband. And so I just want to touch on some of the features of this thing. And then some of the comments, uh, the membership is, uh, to get this, looks like $65. That's for, I think, six months. And let's review. So it monitors activity. And it's giving some kind of points for activity over time, walking, running, etc. Sleep. Body fat, it's measuring your body mass index, uh, sorry, the uh, body fat is what it's looking at. A tone, which is your emotional well-being. A tone is the voice tone. And so it's trying to derive whether you're happy or sad based upon the inflection of your voice. And then there are... They call it labs. So these are science-backed challenges or experiments and workouts that allow customers to discover what works best for them specifically so they can build healthier habits. For example, some customers might discover that cutting off afternoon caffeine improves their sleep quality or that a certain type of workout at home is more effective than others. And they go on to say... The American Heart Association is excited about technology that focuses on new and interesting ways for people to improve their cardiovascular health, quality of life, and health, healthy life years. We're thrilled to see companies like Amazon innovating in this space as the chief medical officer for prevention, American Heart Association. Uh, let's just address the privacy concerns because since you're now all freaked out that Amazon is going to be listening to your uh, every conversation, which it already does through Alexa or whatever other devices you're using. Uh, here's what they say. Privacy is foundational to Amazon Halo, and multiple layers of privacy and security are built into the service to keep data safe and in customer's control. Health data is encrypted in transit and in the cloud, and customers can download or delete their data at any time directly from the app. Body scan images are automatically deleted from the cloud after processing, so only the customer sees them. Tone is enabled by creating a personal voice profile, after which it begins capturing short samples of speech and providing insights and daily recaps. Speech samples are always analyzed locally on the customer's phone and automatically deleted after processing. Nobody, not even the customer, ever hears them. 
that's reassuring to me. I, I thought, I like that. Uh, I mean, someone will find a hole in that somewhere. But I thought at least Amazon's taking the appropriate steps. Gee, if the data's staying on my phone, well, the, the tone, the voice stuff, that, that's reassuring to me. If someone wants to see how fat I am and look at my body fat analysis, go for it. So my take on this and a CMIO's take on it, I think it's another toy. I, I'm not seeing this as a revolutionary breakthrough in health that, that the American Heart Association is thrilled to have Amazon in the space. Great, they're in the space, they made a toy. I'm not convinced that this thing is improving health yet because as a 20-year internal medicine provider, I have never once said, gee, if I had daily body fat analysis on my patients, I'm telling you, we'd be curing some disease, man. We'd be just rocking it. Uh, the tools are limited. Most customers are going to quit within six months and things going to gather dust in the drawer right next to my Fitbit. So it's interesting. I'm going to let some others try it out first. I don't think I'm going to be first in line for this. But that's the Amazon halo. You should be aware it's out there in case your patients come saying how they want this data integrated into the, into the EMR. Oh, no, I should mention that. The, I think it's Scripps out in California is going to be integrating this data through uh, – they're on Cerner. And I thought that was really very interesting. I know the CIO out there, Mike Regan, he's new out there. He came out of Centera and he did an awesome job. He's a real innovative thinker. So I'm not surprised to see him as the first innovation partner here working with Amazon. Uh, that's, that's not surprising at all. Mike's a, uh, he knows everyone, is connected to everything and, and gets stuff done. So uh, good for him. I am a little worried about what data is coming in. Uh, is this a tidal wave of body fat analysis that's going to be coming at us or is it curated data that says, hey, once a month, let me know and give me some insights from that data. And I'm sure Mike's already thinking about that. So uh, just great that there are institutions willing to take that leap and play with this and start bringing in that data and figuring out how to make it useful because that's really, we have to get there. Next, I thought this article was interesting. It comes out of Health IT Analytics. The title is Predictive Analytics Model Identifies Illicit Online Pharmacies. And it came out uh, August 31st. And so the uh, subtitle here is using predictive analytics, consumers could better detect illicit online pharmacies that may be selling substandard medications. This is not a world I was terribly familiar with. So I, I thought, well, gee, let me just read this. I'm more interested in it from the artificial intelligence than I am worried about ordering from an illicit pharmacy because I think the CVS around the corner is just fine. But I know many people do use online pharmacies, and that has to do with the cost of medications in this country, which is a problem. So, a couple paragraphs. Online pharmacies have grown in popularity in recent years, mainly due to their convenience, lower prices, and access to drugs that may be otherwise unavailable. However, researchers noted that consumers have limited awareness of illicit online pharmacies, which are estimated to represent 67 to 75% of web-based drug merchants. That's it means your chance, if you're just Googling something, your chance is that you're going to hit a bad one rather than a good one. Researchers set out to develop a predictive analytics model that could identify and monitor illicit online pharmacies. The team conducted a traffic analysis based on web collected data, which evaluates the means through which customers access online pharmacies and their level of engagement with these sites. So 
I guess they're trying to figure out, well, how do you know which one's the good ones here? And so they are trying to recognize things that are out of the norm, they say. You look at a good online pharmacy and find out what features are of that site, and then you collect the features of other online pharmacies and do a comparison. And they examined several attributes of online pharmacies, but ultimately identified the relationships between pharmacies and other sites as a critical attribute in determining whether the business was legitimate or not. If a pharmacy is mainly reached from referral sites that mostly link to or, or refer illicit pharmacies, then that pharmacy is more likely to be illicit. So you're, you're damned by the company you keep, I guess, is, is what that says. Now, this number totally blew my mind. There are at least 32,000 to 35,000 online pharmacies. The nature of online channels, because these online pharmacies are so dynamic, they come and go quickly around 20 a day. It's like playing whack-a-mole if you're the FBI or whatever regulatory agency would go after this, F the FDA or whatever. That's an impossible problem. You try to shut down one website and 20 more just pop up. Uh, just very difficult, and I'm sure it's all offshore and very difficult to prosecute and find. Uh, they're probably after more important things, but definitely a, an interesting article. As a CMIO, I was just interested in the analytics of it. I'm not 100% sold on their methodology here, but it sounded like a, a good as way as any at the moment. I don't know how else you would identify a bad pharmacy other than getting the drugs and testing it, and that would be a more extensive and difficult research study. So I get why they did what they did here. They needed huge numbers to really be able to make sense of it. And I think it's, I think it's, would I use it if I was ordering online? Yeah, I, I probably would, to be honest. All right, next, this one's out of Healthcare IT News. Online scheduling portals promote care continuity, but may widen gaps in access. This came out of JAMA, and this study showed that early adopters of direct scheduling were more often young, white, and commercially insured. So, a paragraph here. A study of more than 134,000 people completing primary care visits found that early adopters of direct scheduling as opposed to picking up the phone and calling the office were more likely to be young, white, and commercially insured. So why that matters. Direct scheduling can offer patients an option to make appointments at their own convenience outside of business hours. Small-scale studies also show that direct scheduling may be associated with lower no-show rates. And so that makes sense, and I have seen that, that patients who have the ability to cancel, reschedule, they're scheduling at a time that's convenient for them, they're going to make it work in their life. So I think direct scheduling is hugely important, and I mention this because our website is going live with direct scheduling in a bigger way than it has before. They've dabbled in it. But now we're going to put, for primary care, it's going to be like wide open. If it, all providers are going to have uh, slots that can be scheduled, and if you're not even a patient of the practice, you want a new appointment, you're going to be able to get one. And that's the kind of access that patients want. They want it when they want it. And it's our job as clinicians and CMIOs to, to make that happen. And so as a CMIO, I was knee-deep in this one. This and I'm sure you are as well in your, your portal-related projects, the providers are not excited about opening up their schedules. It's an area of control that providers do like to keep. And partnering with, well, my associate CMIO, who did a lot of the legwork here, and then the chief medical officer for the medical group, they got it done. I mean, they went out and 
practice by practice and said, hey, this is where we're going. This is what our patients need. And the patients need access. It's about the patients. And from that standpoint, it's harder to argue that that direct scheduling doesn't make sense. So just the downside of patient portals, the article highlights that as well. Patients say they're clunky, they're confusing interface, and too much time investment for setup. They complain of having different portal for every provider and suffer from so-called multi-portalitis. I am not sure that's a real disease. No, I'm teasing. Uh, so direct scheduling is intended to, to improve convenience while reducing administrative burdens for practices. This offering may have con additional benefits, especially in the primary care setting, such as promoting continuity with one's usual primary care physician. Conversely, direct scheduling might worsen disparities in access to care via the so-called digital divide. And that's absolutely true. There's going to be haves and have-nots, and if you live in a rural community without broadband and you're poor and you have transportation problems and the offices are trying to promote telehealth as a way of connecting because they don't want people in the office, you are now disadvantaged in your ability to get health care. It's something as a country we have to make happen is universal broadband access. I'm a huge fan of that. Next article. Five ways to improve clinical decision support tools, minimize clinician burden. The subtitle here, while CDS tools are helpful to EHR users, they are also primarily linked to clinician burden and alert fatigue by Christopher Jason, August 31st. We kind of knew that part, that it was linked to burden and burnout and uh, they're just annoying. So uh, clinical decision support users and developers can decrease clinician burden if they can improve alert relevance garner end-user feedback, customize for the clinician, measure outcomes and metrics, and continuously optimize according to a study published in the Yearbook of Medical Informatics. So I, I remember a presentation that I saw, I think it was UGM, could have been XGM. It came from the clinical decision support team at Duke. And I remember they were redesigning their BPAs. And I love what they did. They had pictures in them so they help you have visual recognition very quickly. If I saw, I don't know, hypothetically, a skull and crossbones when I am going to sign a medication, yeah, I'm going to look at that. <laughs> That's a bad sign when you're signing your prescription. But I also remember they were collecting feedback. And so those little buttons down at the bottom of your alerts, that's uh, acknowledgement reasons, and you're saying, well, uh, it's clinically appropriate to do this, or whatever you're giving for the reason. They had also the ability to, to get feedback. So something like, I hate this alert. It's never valuable. Make it die. And so that's probably too many words to fit on a button, but you get the concept. They were able to collect end-user feedback in real time, which is so much more valuable than when we go to the department meeting and stand up in front of the providers and say, how's everything going? Everything great? And they can't remember the alert that they hated. Matter of fact, they probably don't even remember that they closed the alert if they've gotten their muscle memory down so good that they just click it close now. So I, I love this concept of getting that feedback and then what they're saying here is, hey, we need to do something with that feedback. So in a literature review of 89 articles describing clinical decision support utilization, including how the tools work, uh, the benefits for or patient outcomes and the efficiency of the tools, researchers found big issues with alarm fatigue. 
alarm fatigue, which stemmed from both quantity of the alerts and the relevance of the warnings led clinicians to override a high rate of alerts or avoid the signals as a whole. And so if you have benchmark data around how well an alert does, and I really think we need to benchmark this among like alerts. So if I'm alerting someone that, hey, you're due for your colonoscopy, that may not have the same acceptance rate as beta blocker and ACE inhibitors in heart failure upon discharge by a cardiologist. Maybe different acceptance rates there. So, but I, I wish we had the benchmarks where we can say, okay, my CHF alert, it covers these kinds of things. How's your CHF alert doing? And if yours is so much higher than mine, what's in your build that could potentially be leading to it? What's the trigger that you're using? What's the, uh, the, the, the words that you're saying? What is it that's making it better? As a CMIO, I would give my left arm for that kind of information. I don't know that my CFO would give his left arm though. The, I think it's really important for a clinician because we get a lot of noise and we've got to decrease the noise. The, the challenge is the alerts aren't bad alerts. It's that they're coming at the wrong time or they, they should know better. We, should, we know the information in the chart as to why this patient can't have the ACE inhibitor. It's just in a unstructured field. And so we have to be able to capture some of that. We're a little far away from getting to that. I think we're probably a couple years, but we really do need to get there. So the researcher said CDS alerts should be customized with specific patient data to lessen the number of notifications. That's just what I was talking about there. And next, researchers learned the end user should be directly involved in the CDS alert design, testing, and implementation. Absolutely. If you can get providers to the table on this, fantastic. But not always so easy. The researchers also said the clinician should have access to customized alerts to reduce clinician alert burden and enhance alert relevance. That's where I would really love to get to, which is show me the alerts where I have shown evidence that I'm not strong in that area of medicine and don't show me the alerts, which I am a specialist that has absolute expertise in it and deal with this every single day based upon my practice patterns. So a board certified cardiologist that runs a CHF clinic, if they're not putting their patient on an ACE inhibitor, there's probably a really good reason for it. So probably we don't need to hit that particular provider. They're thinking about ACE inhibitor beta blockers and whatever else, uh, resynchronization therapy or whatever it takes to get the patient better. They, they got it. That's what they do for a living every day. So I don't, I feel that we need to get there with our alerts and we are nowhere near that level of personalization. Probably the best way to do that would be to give me control as the end user to turn on and off alerts, but that would be horrifying to all kinds of people like pharmacists and uh, those in administration who think that these alerts are doing, are protecting patients from harm, which I'm not quite convinced of all that yet. Not Certainly not all of our alerts. Last article, because I am coming up to where I usually like to wrap up here. We'll do one more. AI EHR assistants need further optimization for improved usability. General practitioners see the potential for using artificial intelligence EHR documentation assistance, but the technology needs to be improved to ensure accuracy. This one came out August 27th, also in EHR intelligence. So 
AI assistance will eventually be a significant part of the clinician workflow. This is a study published in the Journal of American Medical Informatics Association, Jamia. While AI has become more apparent throughout the medical industry to support business analytics, decision-making, and predictive modeling, developers are optimizing AI to aid and streamline EHR documentation. Providers have in the past been tolerating this clinical burden, however, a well-designed AI scribe integrated into the EHR aims to reduce the burden and responsibility of its users. I'm really interested in this area because in-person scribes are difficult. They're difficult to retain, they're difficult to train, difficult to retain. They have to be managed. You have to go on vacation. They have to have backups. So now you get a fleet of these um, pre-med students. Sorry for the pre-med students that we may be putting out of business here, but I, I believe AI is a wonderful tool for this if it can dissect out the conversation. I think it may change the way we have to say things in the exam room. So we talk to the patient and then we say, okay, I'm going to recap now. And then the AI is going to be listening for that part where you're recapping. That's going to be a lot easier for the AI to handle than trying to pick out from the conversation, just the chit chat and background stuff and uh, how's grandma's cat and whatever else you talk about in the exam room. As a primary care doctor, we did that. My surgeons have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But the AI assistant will have a difficult time understanding, I think, about grandma's the health of grandma's cat versus the health of the patient. So I think the, the future's coming in this, but it might be cumbersome in how we implement it. We'll have to see how that works. So the general practitioners here, uh, the respondents, noted autonomy as central to their professional identity and a significant talking point, and this tool helps to give back autonomy. Respondents said their current decision-making roles could be delegated to the AI assistant because they would not want to face the potential consequences of changing the assistant's automated information. I think that's interesting. I, I, I must have read that the first time I read it, but it is saying that they are trusting the AI assistant. Uh, I'm going to read the next paragraph here. If they, the patients, think that they're just getting suggestions from a computer, then maybe they can just get suggestions from a computer, said an anonymous study respondent. I think it becomes more difficult to convince them that our recommendations are more valuable than what they can pick up on the internet. That's a unique perspective. I, I don't know that that's the most common perspective out there. Actually, I'm finding more of my colleagues that are saying, I don't trust the computer. I need to give them recommendation. And I'm hearing from patients that they, if they have a 20-year relationship with their doctor, they, they also want that doctor recommendation. Having said that, if having just turned 50 and being due for a large garden hose to be inserted somewhere, I do I if the artificial intelligence poked me and said, "Hey, you haven't done your colonoscopy yet?" I'd go, "Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, sure, I got to go get that done." Do I need the doctor to tell me that? No. Am I putting it off because I'm lazy? Yes, but we'll come back to that one another day. So, to wrap this one up here, I think artificial intelligence is definitely coming. I know some of my colleagues that are trying this out. Some of them are mixing this with a virtual scribe. That's, I'll mention the vendor here, that's Saykara, S-A-Y-K-A-R-A. I'm looking at that for my organization. I'm very intrigued by that concept of 
the artificial intelligence working, but it's backing, there's a human behind it that's kind of making sure everything's put together as it should be. And it just augments the human's ability to process this stuff faster. I think that's enough for, for the week here. Let's wrap it up. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode. Music